What is our human impact on the world? And what do we leave behind for future non-human generations? By asking experts these questions, I discover that they're not very easy and sometimes almost impossible questions to answer. In this mini podcast series, I discover what problems we face today and what the impact of fire on our ecosystems is. Why is biodiversity so important? How can we undermine climate skeptics? What do past human disturbances leave as legacy? And how can we change our mindset towards caring more about plants? Conservationists use the cutest species to change people's mindset. For plants this is so hard, because nobody feels this attachment to a cute plant. I find plants cute, you probably find plants cute, but the majority of people don't. Crystal McMichael is an assistant professor at University of Amsterdam, but she's originally from the United States. She did her PhD in Florida and her postdocs at University of New Hampshire. But then she took a job here. It was the first time I ever came to Europe was the first time I interviewed for this job. And you got it. And I got it. And then I thought, oh, wow, that will be a change. <laughs> yeah. But no, it was it's a great university, so I couldn't turn it down. So I study ecology, like the interface of modern ecology and paleoecology. So paleoecology is ecology of the past, what we can't observe, observe with our eye. Mm-hmm. And then how that integrates with modern ecology. So I specifically look at these humans and the past disturbances that they create in forests, and then how does that leave these long-term legacies? And what do we see today? Is that an artifact of what people did 200 years ago or 400 years ago, or is it a natural system? Well, to to jump on that immediately, um, what do you think our human impact on the world is today? Wow. It was, or... So today, I think, is exponentially higher than what it was. So there's these papers, and I can send you this, that show these graphs that say, so in the 1950s, when industrialization happened, or post-World War II, that the amount of fertilizer used globally went up, the amount of plastic consumption went up, so all of those plastics start going into the environment. Burning and fossil fuel burning goes up. So you can see this exponential increase in pollutants and all kinds of human impacts in the 1950s, but you actually see human impacts throughout the last 10,000 years. And so it varies where you are and the, the intensity of that varies. So in Amazonia or tropical rainforest, which is where I usually work, um, there's some new papers that have shown people have been there for 20,000 years, so way before we thought previously. It's been implicated that they were responsible for the collapse of the Pleistocene megafauna. So, you know, the Ice Age yeah. movie with all those yeah, big, yeah, the big animals. animals. Yeah, so there's, there's quite a bit of evidence showing that people caused that impact 15,000 years ago. And so imagine the size of those animals, right? They're absolutely enormous. And so the nutrient cycling, just by their eating and pooping, mm-hmm changes dramatically when they get erased from the ecosystem. So nutrient cycling starts to change, plant composition of forest changes, and yeah, it cascades tremendously through that. that But did that happen gradually? Because now it's growing very fast. Yeah. Too fast, actually. They change pretty rapidly in the several thousand years when this megafauna thing happens. And then around 5,000 years ago, you start to see massive agriculture startup around tropical forests. 2,500 years ago, they start to modify the soils and build these, not build, you have clay soils in the Amazon Mm -hmm. and they're not really good for growing crops, right? But they, the people were so smart, they figured out how to modify these soils and make them enriched for nutrients and so they can grow crops on them. And so they, they used bones and ash and all of these compost materials. It's super cool. It's like ancient compost. And so they, they did composting of the soil. And that has remained in those soils for 2,500 years. So it didn't go away. It was like a permanent soil enrichment. And you still see these gardens of called terra pretas all across the Amazon. 
And so, yeah, so even 2,500 years ago, I would say people left a legacy that absolutely is still there on the soils and has changed ecology in those regions on the long term, for sure. But then those people changed, of course, the ecosystem, but they enriched the, the grounds. Well, we today... It was a very... Yes. It's a completely it was, different story, right? It was a sustain... <laughs> it was... Sustainable agroforestry to a degree. You know, they were enriching plants and they were growing useful plants and, and stuff like that. And they were deforesting some, but it was not anything like what happened when machinery came in. Yeah. Today is also the invasive species problem, the deforestation problem. And what do you think we as our species today leave behind for future generations? Wow. There's been some hypotheses that called the plasticine. So the plastics, you know, the eternal plastics will be left behind forever and ever. Mass extinctions, you know, will always be associated with humans in the geological time frame. You know, so, if, you know, 10,000 years in the future, archaeologists look back and said, what were people doing 10,000 years ago? You would see us and you would see mass extinctions all around us in those fossil archives. And I think extinction, invasive yeah. species. <laughs> oh, this is not a, this is not a positive. It is not a positive. It's not a positive. The thing that kind of comforts me is that I was always thinking, oh, we, we invade the, the earth and we break her completely. But actually, she will find some sort of new cycle and start new life and will reinvent herself and try to yeah, yeah. overcome what we leave behind. So that's always such an encouragement for me. Or Yeah, that it does its own damage control yeah. almost. I mean, you can maybe think about the pandemic in mm -hmm. that kind of a way as or any major disaster or catastrophe in, in that way as it's yeah, lessening the impact of humans on the earth. Because I just heard or listened to a podcast as well um, where they said the pandemic has kind of dropped the CO2 levels, but then it's so temporarily that it doesn't really affect the global scale of the CO2 levels. Exactly. But it did show us that if we didn't invade the earth so much, that yeah. you do see like new species coming up or... They can rebound. You can rebound. Exactly. And yeah, and the CO2 is promising that, right? Because we've only done this for, what, six months? We've reduced mm -hmm. emissions. And yeah. you, see, you can see a little bit, if we were to do it permanent as a life choice, I think oh, it has so seen. much effect, right? right? Yeah. Absolutely. And one of these plants um, that I'm researching uh, on in the Hortus is the sequoia tree. Yeah. Which is, like, I think I call it the climate adaptable tree, the, the amazing ancient tree that has been here for ages and ages. And you see that she actually survives the fires or the wildfires in California. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there any reason for that, or do you know anything about that? That one's evolutionary fire dependent, mm -hmm. I think. So it's just evolved in this system that's always had fire, where a lot of systems, tropical forests, none of those plants are evolutionary adapted to handle fire. But those sequoias, they're yeah, amazing, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yes, amazing plants. But then talking about these wildfires, we actually also do need wildfires to sustain ecosystems, mm -hmm. right? How yeah. does that work? So a natural burning system would happen when you have drought and then you have, say, a lightning ignite it. And I think in the western United States, fire has been suppressed for a long time because so much development and urbanization has happened. So the natural fire systems that would normally occur are extinguished. And so this biomass builds up like it's fuel and fuel and fuel and fuel. And then when a fire finally ignites, somebody throws their cigarette butt out or a lightning thing happens, mm -hmm. then there's so much biomass that it's catastrophic. Where if it's normally, you know, normal fire, it would just run, the fire runs kind of across the ground and it takes out some plants and not others, but it's it's a positive on the ecosystem for regeneration where once you have this accumulation and these really, really intense fires, they just kill everything because it's so intense. So it alters the intensity of fire. Humans do. Yeah, so, but then also climate change does not enhance fires itself 
but it enhances the the, the drought, the and drought, the and probability the... of fire ignition and the buildup of dead plants that dr- that die from the drought itself. And is there a way of us making those those fires we actually need containable, or like could we do that ourselves in a sort some sort of restrained way? Or prescribed burning happens yeah. in some places, but it's um it's a local political issue because nobody wants it in their backyard. Of course, yeah, yeah. Mm. So it does happen, but it doesn't happen a lot of times for that reason. Yeah, public misinformation a lot, you know. They don't consider that this would maybe save their community in the long run to prevent a catastrophic yeah, fire, like just these. to let it burn naturally. But So it's really also a change of mindset. We need, do need to change our mindset to... Yeah. For to, all of these for things. For all of these things. All of these things, I think. That's you know, insane. For the CO2, for the fire, for the climate change. Because also, uh, I read an article in the, I think, New York Times that Biden accusing Trump of being a climate arsonist. Yes, I heard that. Yes, <laughs> yes. His climate denial absolutely, you know, is detrimental. No doubt about that. And even the anti-science rhetoric that he pushes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's he just going to make he it He also worse. said, like, um, science doesn't know. Science doesn't know. <laughs> I saw that. And so science is always a back and forth, right? It's hypothesis testing and you move forward and then you figure out, oh, maybe it's a better way to do it or it's a progress. And there's never a certain end point of like, yes, we're finished. We know everything or else we wouldn't have a job. But to take that and say scientists don't know anything is absolutely insane. Are you scared for the United States? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm going back in a, in a few weeks and I'm staying there through the election and I will volunteer as a poll worker because... So many old people just can't get out and, mm. and work these polls. Yeah, so I'm I'm very against Trump and against that whole mindset of anti-science, anti-people. And what will happen if the United States um, like officially uh, pulls back from the Paris Agreement? I think it's going to be very detrimental. Yeah, I mean, I, I hate to even... I, I've tried to not consider what will happen. No. But then I have another question about fire. Fire also provided life on earth right it provided all the the elements we need how does that entail so elements we need as far as for people yeah i do want to shift from the human perspective more into plant perspective but then for life on earth that is true um it does provide it is important for many many functions it's important for plants and the soils Mm. and all of the interactions between the plants and the soils but it's not necessary in all systems and it doesn't exist in all systems so which systems is it necessary for? Super wet systems do not require fire at all. So tropical forests, no. Savanna-type systems depend on fire. The western forests of the United States depend on fire. Like the eastern parts of the wet United States, not so much. So it, it's variable in its evolutionary history. But it has been on the earth for you know billions of years. Yeah, but why do these wet areas don't need fire? Why do- so they can regenerate and grow and and live completely without fire. So right. they are more dependent on soils and soil quality and, and things like that. And actually fire hurts them more than helps them. So reduces yeah. species richness. Yeah, the biodiversity is yeah. super important for these systems. Yeah, so it loses biodiversity. <laughs> the normal plants would become replaced with a bunch of fire-adapted species. And yeah. So those are pioneer-type disturbance species, and they'll start to pop up all over the place where you get fire. So you kind of homogenize the landscape where you used to have thousands and thousands mm. of species. You replace it with just a few hundred that can survive those fires. And it, so that, it, that is dangerous, why? <laughs> for the reduction of biodiversity, yeah. for sure. And the mm-hmm. reduction of ecosystem functioning too, because the ones that are more prone to die mm-hmm. would have higher biomass, different carbon dynamics, and so differential in functioning too. And why are we humans so dependent on uh, a species-rich ecosystem? 
part of it is the intrinsic value because we value species and value life. But part of it is that diversity is related to function. And so if you think about in the human context, timber species or anything that we use, there's ecological redundancy associated with it. So say if we lose one species, there's another one that serves the same function, right? And Mm -hmm. so it's always better to have a lot of species so that if we lose them, we keep the function of the ecosystem where you can lose them to a degree that you've lost your nitrogen fixers or then you've lost your your canopy plants, which then provide all the functioning for the lower plants. And then we literally break the circle. Exactly. So it kind of doesn't circulate anymore. Like literally. Yeah, Yeah, the soil plant cycle breaks down. I read, I think I read it on the on your profile, of course. Uh, there's this question, how do all these disturbances, including past human activity and fires, affect the modern ecosystem? Which I thought was a super interesting question. Yeah, so a lot of these plants, you know, they live hundreds and hundreds of years, right? So tropical plants can live 500 years, a thousand years, just like some of the ones that you've seen at the mm-hmm. horses that live super long time. So imagine you have a forest, and, and we were people that lived 500 or 600 years ago, and we grew crops and we cultivated the land you know we burned it down we planted maize and squash and all that fun stuff when europeans came to the americans you had this massive population collapse and this land abandonment across the tropics because the disease you know Mm, they couldn't handle the the diseases and then this all starts to regrow and it regrows in a way that is reflective of what you and i did 500 years ago that we're growing say peach palm trees and brazil nut trees and we have our little orchards and stuff they wouldn't have been there had we not been growing them right Mm. And so as this progresses over the 500 years, these trees live so long that they would still, the Brazil nuts and all of these fruiting trees would still be alive today. And so you would see these high abundances of these domesticated species all across the Amazonian landscape. And some archaeologists or anthropologists use those to say, oh, this was probably an old old occupation site and they'll go and dig there. And so these types of activities forest management can show up hundreds and hundreds of years after the people have actually left the site because the trees live so long yeah it's amazing yeah oh yeah and do you think in the future we will see more fire prone environments all over the world definitely yeah because everything adapts as it gets more and more frequent yeah so everything changes yeah these grasslands will also shift right and yeah expand most expand yeah yeah Definitely. And do you think we will still see those shifts or is that a long-term process? I think we see a little bit of it now. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's a hard one. You probably will see it more than I will. Because <laughs> you're probably what? You're at least 20 years younger than I am. Yeah. I'm 26. Yeah. <laughs> I also really like that ecosystems are not static. I think our, a shift in our mindset is so important that we, because we don't see plants grow. It's such such a strange view to look at a plant because it's so it is it looks very static. But then, can you explain us a bit more about those ecosystems and how they are not static and why they are so important? Yeah, so the static idea is an is an old one. You know, yeah. it used to be kind of taught in ecology that once a system was undisturbed for a long time, it was static and it didn't change. But that's absolutely not the case. And so there's turnover on multiple scales so you can have generational turnover and that's just some trees die and they're randomly replaced by other and then you can have climatic turnover which may drive species change in a little bit different of a direction and then you can have human-based turnover which can totally as we talked about yeah. yeah flip the systems and that can happen on scales of days or seasons so we have seasonal turnover and in 
maybe not just plant communities. I sometimes think about animal communities too. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about migrations yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah. like that, which maybe is probably not. You're sticking to plants, right? Yeah. No, well, stick with plants. No, I just want to, I can also stick to animals. Okay. I just don't want to do a human perspective. Yeah. So plant turnover, you can take one section of tropical forest and you can measure it. So a lot of these tropical forests are measured every two to three to five years. Depends on how frequently they can get new. And you see a turnover in species with no... So these are no humans at all. So these are way out in the middle of the rainforest. And maybe they had humans 500 years ago, like we talked about. But in the present day, there's no no disturbance. Then you can go back from these year to year and two to five year intervals. And some of them have been done two to five years all the way to 30 years. And you see a lot of dynamism just within that 30 years. And remember, that's not even on the time span of their life. So that's just really, really short dynamism. But it's not mortality and it's not new things coming in. And then once you look at that from a broader and broader time scale, you can see it more dynamic and more dynamic and then out. Have you ever done these zoom-ins that go from like the universe all the way down to like yeah, the, to your own street or something? Yeah, yeah exactly. So you've got like this dynamic, yeah. non-static yeah. things working at all of these different yeah. time scales. And so I think the idea of just a static community mm-hmm. doesn't really exist on any of any them. level. Yeah. yeah. And how how would you see a, a change in mindset towards? those things not being static and having more maybe empathy with plants or animals or that we see that we finally see the importance of those ecosystems or species or how how can we change our mindset towards plants or animals it's hard because the focus always goes to humans doesn't it i mean for conservationists they use the keystone species you know they use the cutest fuzziest animal that they can (laughs) find the panda (laughs) And they, they try and change people's mindset for conservation by using something that everybody can attach to. Yeah, it's cute. It's plants yeah. are so hard because nobody feels this attachment to a cute... I find plants cute. You probably find plants cute, but the majority of people don't. I don't know how to change that mindset. There was, There's been a lot of things on plant blindness. Basically, these studies that will show people photographs and they say, what do you see in this photograph? Mm-hmm. And so some of these photographs would be like a chicken in the middle of a forest or, you know, just random objects with some kind of plants around it. And you ask them, what do you see? A chicken. Okay, what do you see next? Okay, um, maybe there were some other, you know, there's other little random objects. And the plants were the very last things that anybody documented or anybody caught on to. Oh, I see a palm tree or, oh, I see a forest. No, it always was the background. There's like huge percentages of these studies showing that the plants never get mentioned. They are just the backdrop and everything with chickens, trash on the ground, bubblegum wrappers, you know, all of that thing, all those were pointed out before the plants. So it is really Super interesting. To, yeah, to get people's mindset to really care about the plants. Like we know they're important, but yeah. we just don't care about them. It's so weird. Yeah, because they are the foundation of Everything we do. Right. All the animals depend on these plants for either food or shelter or Mm -hmm. anything, but we just don't seem to care about them as much. Because they're also usually at the bottom of our hierarchy. So it's plants, animals, humans. Exactly. It's like a pyramid Mm -hmm. and it it should actually be more like a circle. Yeah, totally agree. And probably soils could fit in there as well because people usually just, if they ignore plants, they really ignore Ignore soils. soils. Yeah. A mindset like that is super important. Even like the books that now come out that trees can talk or they communicate. Communicating trees, that might be a good way to get people more interested. If you give them, how do you call it, aspects, humanization aspects, you know, because animals, they they love each other and they bond with each other and Mm -hmm. they show human things and plants don't, but they communicate and Mm -hmm. 
because the, the fun thing I realized I started like maybe when I was 16 with a, a, a research on how we mimic nature and it was still my human perspective like oh there's this swimsuit and it's based on a shark skin wow amazing and then I kind of was like oh, the nature knows so much already and Nature kind of invented everything already. Mm-hmm. So even now, these root systems are being compared to the internet. So it's being a wood wide web. Yeah. And so the fungal is probably as the, well. These fungal networks are insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they have like brain like structures on the end of the roots and stuff like that. So I was actually now I'm at the point of thinking maybe everything already exists in nature and we just um, are drastically behind with that all we our just technology. Don't know about it, which is another reason to. <laughs> conserve biodiversity mm-hmm. and stuff because there is so much that we don't know mm-hmm. and that is unsampled undiscovered we still find new species and genus in plants in the tropics right? yeah especially in the amazonian forests right yeah yeah and who knows what who knows? you know what those plants are capable of doing mm-hmm. um hypothesizing on the future is something so hard and also we don't know what will happen but still creating these worlds. I want to show with these worlds, like, this is what we do. This, these species will survive. And then give a little insight on some science facts. Yeah. With stories that are maybe n- not as fearful as those doom scenarios. Yeah. So some positive some, ones. Some, some positive. positive ones as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's what, that's what I try to do. If you, if you are this alien geologist visiting Earth in, let's say, 10,000 years... What you do, do you expect to see? If you could sketch a vivid, Ooh, a vivid would image. Would I still expect to see humans or have they gone extinct? Wow. I'm going to go with they've gone extinct. <laughs> Maybe you have some wild human species roaming around, but probably right. not in the extent we see them today, not right? Way, no. no, probably not with our lifestyle choices or morphology, yeah. And one other question, we have a lot of climate skepticists because they usually point out that throughout the history of the Earth, we've seen a lot of changes. But why is this one specifically so dangerous? A lot of the climate deniers will point out the super ancient temperature of the Earth. So 55 million years ago, at that point, the Earth had no similarity of geological configuration, atmospheric or oceanic cycling. It was it was a completely different Earth at that point. Over the last 2.6 to 2.8 million years, the tectonics and the atmospheric oceanic circulations are what we know as current. So mm-hmm. there was a polar, there's a polar current set up. The Isthmus of Panama has connected, and so that has blocked the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And mm-hmm. so that set up oceanic circulation as we know it. Within that time period, so the 2.8 to 2.6 million years to now, there is variation between ice, um, ice ages, what what we think about mm-hmm. and non ice ages, which yeah. is what we have here. They're called interglacial. Interglacial, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Within that last two point six million years, you've got this cycle of glacial, interglacial, glacial, interglacial. The temperature and the CO two levels within this time period have never exceeded the bounds of what we know today. And so, I think there's several climate curves that will show you that I think in nineteen fifty eighteen hundred something like that we started to go up. And then we exceeded the norm, and I can't remember what that number is, and has just gone way above any variability that we've seen in 2.8 million years, which is the current configuration of Earth tectonics. Yeah. So you also do acknowledge we are now in the Anthropocene. Yeah. Yeah. As far as the humans driving geologic processes across the Earth, yeah, I think they probably passed that threshold around 1950. Yeah. Yeah. 
So the Industrial Revolution, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some debate on when the Anthropocene <laughs> should have started, of course, but I think, yeah, no doubt we do drive Earth processes at this point, but what time it started. Do you see a, an, a nice outcome or a prospect that is still some sort of livable system? I think we're pretty adaptable as species for mm-hmm. us and the, the plants and animals as well. Is it going to be what we think of and know? No, but a lot of it depends on this, uh, you know, policy that we're doing now and that we've done for the last 10 years. You know, we've kind of screwed up for the last few decades. And so at what point can we change that trajectory, I think, is going to determine the longer we wait, the worse. Yeah. Do you expect to see plants that are able to adapt more quickly or species that will uh, somehow still be able to kind of adapt? So most species you can consider generalist or specialist. And generalists, kind of like ourselves, we can eat multiple things, we can have multiple nu- nutrient and resource mm-hmm. intakes, and it, we're not specialized to, say, a plant that lives at a very specific temperature and precipitation mm-hmm. on a mountain range. Yeah. So, you know, mountain ranges are great, and they have all these little caves and stuff like that. And those really specialist rare species, like orchids or stuff like that, they won't be able to change or adapt to yeah, climate exactly. change. But these generalists, like pine trees or oak trees, the the things that grow commonly everywhere across the globe now, will be the ones that can easily adapt and survive. Referring back to something you said earlier, the spread of these species around the globe is also a human impact, right? Because we spread all these species around the globe. Mm -hmm. Does it also bring some dangerous things with it? Yeah, so when we brought rats, we as Europeans, when we brought rats over to the American continent, that caused... 15, 1491 was Columbus or 1492 and then by the 15 or 1600s we were we as Europeans were moving over to the to the American continent and we brought rats and goats and all kind of animals that didn't belong here and so they've irreversibly changed ecosystems. So actually then I also want I always wonder what is nature but then with the start of the rise of the human species mm-hmm. actually we we don't know what nature is anymore right? No, not what. Well, not with all the mixing and things no. like that. Mm-mm. No. From your point of view, what is nature? Ooh, that's a hard philosophical question. Isn't it? <laughs> so I've been asked this before, but really? I've been asked, "What is a pristine forest?" You know, I've been asked specifically, "Is this one that has never been touched by humans?" No, humans have been in those tropical forests that I also, study for yeah. you know fifteen thousand years, and has at some point a human walked through this patch of forest? Absolutely, of course. Did they burn it down and bring invasive species? Maybe, maybe not, Mm -hmm. you know. And so I think the idea of an untouched by people system through thousands of years probably doesn't exist in most places, but the impact that people had would vary substantially, whether they hunted the system or burned it or Mm -hmm. cultivated it. Yeah, because cultivation is also a big part of um, our human lifespan, right? Exactly, Yeah, yeah, for the last... 10,000 years or so we've been cultivating across the globe. I do still want to look from a different perspective, but then every time I'm so impressed by the things we could do or the things we can do. Mm-hmm. So it's also hard to kind of change your perspective. It's very hard to change. Because we do good things also, and we are smart spe- yeah. a smart species. I think that's one of the things to highlight. You know, we always look at this from the doom and gloom perspective, yeah. but we are smart, we are adaptable, and if we change the mindset, we could probably change a lot more than we think. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why people like you. Yeah. <laughs> and that's important, right? Because the general public can respond to art in a much more emotional way than they will to a scientific paper that I write that's very dry and has a lot of statistics and stuff like that and they just look at it like Donald Trump and say oh (laughs) they don't know anything but art and science communicators have a different 
ability to connect with people and change yeah. the mindset. Yeah. The thing that I really like is that I can maybe, or that's that's my goal, of course, show these scientific papers in a different light and have more empathy for them or people being more able to read them and more there's a wider access for them, but then also vice versa. Mm-hmm. So I learn a lot, a different look on certain topics and yeah, so I think this bridge is so, so, so important. Totally. But yeah. not even, not, it's not only art and science, but it's like these combinations Public between... Public mindsets. Yeah. And, and, right. No, I think it's super important. Science is always a back and forth. It's hypothesizing and testing and figuring out, oh, maybe there's a better way to do it. It's a process and there's never a certain endpoint of, yes, now I'm finished and I know everything. But like Trump stated, scientists don't know anything is absolutely insane. We know that humans now alter the intensity of fires. So climate change enhances the drought and the probability of fire expansion with the buildup of plants that died from the drought itself. Even 2500 years ago you could say that people left a legacy which is absolutely still there on the soil and has changed ecology in those regions on the long term for sure. Imagine what our legacy of today will be for the future.